I'm Scott Schiff with the Atlas Society, and this is an Ask Me Anything with our senior scholar, Richard Salzman. Uh, Richard does these periodically, and we want to invite you to be part of this. So if you have any questions, uh, just raise your hand, and we'll bring as many of you up to the stage as possible. Uh, in the meantime, I always have some that I like to start off with. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for doing this. Um, you know, I guess I, I'd like to start with the economy. Is the lesson of this economy that uh, there's just now enough government interference in the market and monetary policy that we can't even count on truisms like that an inverted yield curve will lead to a recession? Well, that's a good question. Some of the viewers, uh, some of the listeners may not know what that means, but it is a, an indicator of past recessions. And that always does come up that if in the past some indicator of the business cycle has worked, uh, well, why will it continue to work? Um, now, this one in particular, uh, short-term interest rates above long-term interest rates or inversion of the yield curve, which the Fed largely causes, it's been actually a perfect indicator of recessions. Now, by perfect, I mean eight recessions since 68. Um, and it has no false signals either. I've talked about this before. False signals would be it inverts, but there's no recession or a recession comes without inversion. And it has been inverted since October uh, 2022. That's a long time. So I've been forecasting recession starting sometime this year. The, the principle I think you're naming, um, Scott, is it different this time? It's a very interesting one from the standpoint of forecasting. And I specialize in forecasting the business cycle and investment performance and things like that. But we know in our own lives, we need to forecast how our life is going to go, or we need to forecast what kind of uh, profession we're going to pursue or romance, or, you know, even if we're forecasting the future of America, I find the whole field of forecasting so fascinating. And, uh, but you do have to have some principles as to causation. So uh, the short answer to your question, I don't know if people want to pick up on it more. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't think the, uh, government intervention in the economy is going to negate the power of this particular uh, forecasting mechanism. I do believe that government intervening in the economy does distort a lot of things. But one way of looking at market prices or interest rates or the kind of signals I look at is they incorporate also government craziness. So, um, for example, if there was no central bank, they might not manipulate interest rates. We might not see in a manipulation of interest rates, which would lead to this situation. But now that we have central banking, we've had it for a long time, you can imagine why people might say, wow, the, 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 we have central banks now, so this signal doesn't work anymore. No, it works all the, it, it still works, it just incorporates the craziness. So um, others will know this as, uh, you know, for example, when they imposed price controls in the 70s amidst inflation, you get shortages of things, you get gas lines, you get uh, scarcity of things, right? Now, you could say that's an irrational policy. It is. But it's like saying the laws of economics can't be conned. In some way, the markets will reflect the craziness, and and that's in the form of lines and stuff. So you can predict, even when the government intervenes, there are ways to predict the good or ill of it. I don't know if that helps. Um, answer yeah, I guess at least part of it is, uh, you know, just wondering when the Fed was starting with this policy saying, well, why would Biden not at least be, you know, screaming at them publicly because of them causing him a recession going into an election year? 
Well, part of it would be that it's not necessarily true, and I don't think it is true, that the Biden economic advisors know this. They, they, they may not know that when the Federal Reserve inverts interest rates like this, that it's almost always a, a reliable signal of recession. So it just could be marked down to ignorance that they don't, they don't know. And it's not really a secret. Uh, th- this thing has been documented six ways from Sunday. But another way of looking at it would be if they said to the Fed, do not raise interest rates to, quote unquote, fight inflation, they, they would have been seen as soft on inflation. So they're very opportunistic. The pragmatists are very, uh, you know, myopic. They're only looking very short term ahead. And, you know, for now, their view would be, oh, the Fed's raising rates and we can take credit for bringing inflation down. That's not actually how you bring inflation down. But, um, you know, and, and almost like they'll say, well, we'll wonder, we'll worry later whether there's a recession that hurts our reelection chances. Sure. Well, I know Lawrence has a question. I have some others and we want to invite others to, uh, you know, join us if, if you have some. But Lawrence, go ahead. Thanks, Scott. Hi, Richard. Hi. So uh, my question for you is, I just this is maybe a bit more of a history question more than anything, but it's along these similar, similar lines to when we look at, you know, United States history, there seem to be, you know, certain moments that stand out from the rest in which government sort of power and authority really grew by leaps and bounds. There's, yeah. um, we would say, like maybe Civil War during the time of FDR. And I, I was curious if uh, there were any others that maybe are a little bit maybe more obscure to most people that you uh, would say were also pivotal points. I think maybe like 9-11 would be another with the Patriot Act. But were, are there other points that maybe people often overlook? If I were, yeah, that's a really good question. If I were to name, I just jotted down some ideas while you were asking. Um, if I were to name like the top five uh, cases where either some kind of national catastrophe or something happened and it's either caused by government intervention or government intervention was the result. And and more than that, that after the fact, the intervention stuck. In other words, persisted. Now, in this regard, I actually think the first one you named is not a case of it, even though the most, uh, even though the most serious thing was the Civil War. One of the remarkable things about the post-Civil War, that 50-year period, I I tend to name that 50-year period between the end of the Civil War and the beginning of World War I, there was a lot of massive deregulation and demobilization and shrinking of government. And we were still on the gold standard and we were moving toward free trade and there was still no central bank and there was still no... um, you know, national income tax. We did not have the full-fledged regulatory state. And Mark Twain famously mocked the period as the Gilded Age. Gilded, though, because he was seeing, you know, rich mansions in Newport and elsewhere and thought the Marxist view, you know, they must be living off the back of the workers. So even though that was a tectonic, absolutely consequential uh, event, it definitely liberated the labor market and turned the South from feudalism to put it on a path of capitalism. But here's the big ones I would name in the sense of a negative result. The whole populist progressive era, which runs reluctantly from 1900 to World War I, terrible. Uh, World War I basically, uh, in all many different ways, uh, ended laissez-faire capitalism. 
And um, I can name all the reasons we can talk about, but that did bring in the Fed, the federal income tax, a bunch of regulatory agencies, uh, a, an, an adulteration of the gold standard, massive government borrowing. So all the kind of things we're used to today. The next big one is definitely FDR and the New Deal in the 30s and 40s. Uh, none of that has been repealed. The SEC, the FDIC, Social Security was 1935. <clears throat> the next step would be um, the quote unquote Great Society of LBJ, JFK and LBJ actually. So Medicare, Medicaid, that's all 1965. Uh, Nixon going off the gold standard in 1971, I kind of lump him in together with LBJ. That was a very bad um, turning point and no fix afterwards. And and the last one I would and the, the, the regulatory state be, really took off in the 70s as well. Nixon, for example, EPA, that was Nixon. OSHA regulating business, uh, that was Nixon. Uh, Nixon was a big regulatory guy and go off the gold standard guy. So he's known for Watergate and stuff, but he did much worse things in political economy. I, I like your mentioning of 9-11 because one of the themes of my book called um, Where Have All the Capitalists Gone? is that the last 20 years of the last century was a very good uh, trend. It was uh, away from, of course, the Cold War ended. That was nice. But even the Democrats were starting to ape Reaganomics. Um, so Bill Clinton, uh, we're going to end welfare as we know it. The era of big government is over. Um, that The 80s and 90s were really great. Uh, again, not laissez-faire capitalism, but you want to look for the direction. And that has definitely reversed in the last 20 years. Uh, so the last 20 years of the last century, first uh, first 20 years of this century, very bad. Whether it's due to 9-11, whether it's due to a loss of American confidence in its ideals, there's many reasons to name it. But um, yes, 9-11 would be part of it. I, I always used to say that I never, I never thought in retrospect that the sucker punch of 9-11 was the issue. That we should have expected that we might get a attack from, um, you know, 17th century savages. But it is true that the U.S. didn't provide national defense. And, and I thought the worst outcome of 9-11 was the fact that we didn't really do anything about uh, Islamic terrorism. We were scared. We appeased them. We, we engaged in forever wars that were never won. And so the last 20 years have been pretty bad. And I'm just naming foreign policy stuff. And you're right. You're absolutely right to pick the Patriot Act. I think the concern we have today with the surveillance state, uh, uh, Snowden and Julian Assange and all those guys under attack for exposing the surveillance state and the and the state, you know, where the excuse was, we're just trying to fight terrorists here. And now they're completely out of control. Um um, so, yeah, 9-11 is OK as a turning point in the negative sense um, that you named. Is that too much, Lawrence? No, I think that's good. And, and, and I guess the reason I had brought I mentioned sort of the Civil War at the outset, because, yeah, I, I do recall you've mentioned sort of the deregulation, but um, maybe my history is a bit uh, out of or maybe I need to brush up on it. But I feel like there was also this shift towards internationalism and what we would see around the turn of the century with the whole well, that, yeah, great that white fleet and that, not. that was much more Teddy Roosevelt and the quote-unquote progressive era at the end okay. of the century. But it is true, maybe objectivists should be aware, it is true that there is a debate that's been going on for a long time between libertarians and objectivists 
well, I don't know if objectivists, I mean, it's a lot of objectivists agree with this, but the libertarian complaint is that Lincoln was terrible, that even though slavery ended, that, that the way Lincoln did it brought us a more invasive federal state. So that gets into the whole neo-Confederacy thing where a lot of libertarians lean in the direction of, I wish we had just remained a Jeffersonian agrarian republic, you know, a kind of feudal. There are libertarians who argue that way. And there's some objectivists who feel that way as well. So their, their hero is Jefferson, not uh, the line that runs from Washington, Hamilton, the Federalists, Lincoln, Coolidge, Reagan. I think that whole lineage, which I just named, is much more consistent with uh, capitalism, um, because Hamilton, for all his faults, uh, which I don't think are the many, you know, he was the one who really said, we should be advocating capitalism, not this agrarian, slavish, feudal, Southern. And Ayn Rand, of course, is on record saying one of the things she loved about America and the Civil War is that the Northern capitalist system vanquished the Southern backward feudal slavish system that's a very powerful argument but it's not one that some it's one that a lot of libertarians are uncomfortable with i mean lincoln did suspend habeas corpus at for a while there he imposed an income tax but then it was repealed afterwards they went off the gold standard and started issuing greenbacks the whole greenback moment was like hyperinflation so there were some nasty things that went on during lincoln's time but i'm very impressed with what was done after um, I don't want to say after Lincoln was killed, but the after Lincoln was so important to not only preserving the union, but preserving a country that could be capitalist that I think he's one of the greatest presidents ever. Uh, Reconstruction, remember the part of the policy was to go down to the South and make sure the South behaved itself after the war. And of course they didn't. You had to come back at this in 1965 with MLK and civil rights movement. It was the Democrats for all that time resisting, uh, resisting, um, the uh, the uh, loss of the Civil War. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Thank you, Lawrence. Good question. You mentioned Julian Assange, and I think you posted him about this week. You know, the against the further imprisoning of him. I've I've kind of come to the same place. I'm curious if you think that seeing at least the appearance of corruption in our intel or justice institutions that has maybe made some people reevaluate him? Yeah, this is an interesting case and not, I think, an obvious one uh, because um, civil libertarians and libertarians themselves will kind of knee-jerk say, let him go, let him be free because he's just exposed the state and the state is terrible and F the state and, you know, that kind of Rothbard type stuff. Now, if you go all the way back to the Pentagon Papers, where the case is similar, Daniel Ellsberg is at either the CIA or the Pentagon, I forget. And he steals the Pentagon Papers and gives them to the New York Times and the Washington Post. Now, ultimately, the Supreme Court of the United States uh, uh, exonerated him. And it, it, it came up with a weird uh principle, but the idea was kind of like what they did with Roe v. Wade. So this is like a 1971 decision. But they said something like, you cannot censor a publication like the New York Times or uh, Washington Post just because they receive material 
that might have been purloined from the Pentagon. Now, it actually was purloined. The side of it where I'm sympathetic to punishing someone who does that is I do believe a state has a right to keep state secrets. The, the problem today is it keeps a whole bunch of stuff that really isn't important, isn't really relevant. So they like overclassified and overdone it in that regard. Uh, but I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not the kind of person who says, let any internal state worker steal stuff and give it and distribute it to the public because it might undermine, you know, could really undermine national security. Now, the, the Pentagon Papers case is interesting and it relates to Julian Assange because Ellsberg said, I am looking at documents internally. And he's, a, he's an analyst that say we're losing the Vietnam War. And that we've been losing it for six or seven years. This is all during the. And he said, and the, and in public they say we're winning it, and more guys are dying, and more money's being spent. I mean, you could put yourself in Daniel Ellsberg, who was hated by Nixon, hated by the conservatives, hated by Bill Buckley. But in a way, it was a it was a Herculean, uh, a courageous thing for him to do. Now I remember Ellsberg at the time said, if you want to arrest me and put me in prison forever, go ahead. If I have violated something, go ahead. I wish I didn't face that fate, but I'm willing to do it for this reason. And Julian Assange basically said the same thing. He found stuff on Hillary, on other people having to do with the wars in Iraq and the wars in Afghanistan. And look in retrospect, how interesting, because he's been in jail for 10 years. And what has what has evolved over the last 10 years? Very similar to the Pentagon Papers, a recognition that we were never winning the Afghan war or the Iraq war. There was no, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction. Right. So so Assange was doing something similar to what Daniel Ellsberg did in the Vietnam War. He was saying now he got he wasn't in he wasn't an insider, but insiders leaked to him papers and documents showing that the Pentagon was not winning the Iraq war, that there was no weapons of mass destruction. That was the pretext for going in there, if you remember. Same thing with Afghanistan. We know that after 20 years, um, Biden disgracefully drew out of there. And, and so, so Assange has actually not been charged with anything, which is really quite remarkable. But he's been incarcerated for 10 years. The, the, the news this week was he went before a British court. He is in Britain at uh, Belmarsh Prison, I believe. He's been there for five years or so. And the issue this week was whether he would be uh, sent to the U.S. extradition. The U.S. has been wanting to get him back to the U.S. so they can prosecute him and jail him for um, leaking uh, U.S. Documents now. I think Trump has been asked, like, whether he was, if he was president, would he um, pardon uh, Snowden? Snowden's another case we can talk about, or Assange. And I think he's waffled on that a little bit. But there are people like Mike Pompeo, who was Secretary of State, who said he wanted to kill the guy. I mean, the CIA and the Pentagon really do not want. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's apparently straight on record that Mike Pompeo said, um, we need to kill Julian Assange. He's a threat to national security and it's exposing all these things. And so I lean in the direction of get the word, get the evidence out. You cannot, uh, you really, Britain and America, neither of you should be incarcerating someone without actually charging them or convicting them. 
that that is like a bare minimum you can't do that and um anyway i'll stop there there's way more to say about it but i think that decision is imminent we will we will know soon whether julian assange in a british prison will be sent to the u.s and i believe that if he is under biden and under the existing regime, they would jail him and do nasty things to him, which is unfortunate. Yeah, I've heard they they would put him in the supermax with the, you know, the worst criminals out there. Yeah, yeah, and if if it's a Jeffrey Epstein type thing, and again, I'm no conspiracy theorist, but if someone is in prison and they knew they know upper ups who are hiding things. That person is in danger. That could that person could be in danger. And, I, and my understanding is that one of the reasons Julian Assange went first not first to the Ecuador um, uh, consulate in Britain because he was being chased by he he wanted to have some kind of <laughs> haven. So I don't know why he picked Ecuador, but and then he was and then he was transferred over to Belmarsh and the U.S. The U.S. basically can pretty much tells Britain what to do. So I would be very surprised if Britain said, no, he's not going to be extradited. But even if, even if so, he would still be stuck in that Belmarsh prison. So I don't know. I, I almost want him released from Britain and brought here because it would really be a headliner. I think, I think he'd be at risk, but he's withering. His wife says he's withering away and dying anyway at Belmarsh. So I'm, I'm actually hoping that the British say, send him to America. He'd be on a plane next week. It would be frontline news. It would be, why? Well, who is this guy again? And what did he expose? It might be a good thing if public opinion saw, oh, my God, are you telling me that he just exposed the fact that you guys were lying about how we were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, that's all proved to be true. What's wrong with Julian Assange? What are you guys doing? Um, anyway, I, that, that's too long an answer. Let me, uh, just because you brought up, uh, you know, that his life could be in danger, that he's withering away, um, you know, speculation on possible Putin involvement in Navalny's death. Oh, Navalny. Yeah, I, I don't know. I do think... Um, People are just jumping to the idea that he did it. But um, I don't know. So I'm really reluctant to say. I mean, put it this way. You could do an if, if, then. If this is just another case of Vladimir Putin um, curbing, torturing, killing rivals, it's, it's obviously it's terrible. I'm not sure that's entirely true here. There's actually rumors going around that maybe Ukraine did it. As Ukraine does have a hit group it, itself, as Zelensky has a, his own kind of hit group. It's just as corrupt as most other regimes. And, of course, they would know the high-profile case here. Navalny's only 47 years old, and he was apparently just walking around the um, prison yard, and something happened. But... No, you don't have to defend, uh, you don't have to pretend or defend that um, uh, Vladimir Putin is a, a liberal. But um, there's something very odd about the Russian people where uh, even though I think they're much better off than they were under Stalin and um, other, they do vote for authoritarians. They tend to like strongmen. 
And it's funny because um, Putin has now been elected, I think, four times. Now, people will dispute whether he's fairly and openly elected. By the way, he's up for election again a month from now. So it's going to happen again. And now in America, we have had presidents elected four times. People forget this, but FDR was elected four times. Now, I'm not saying FDR is Putin, but in the long sweep of history, FDR is the most autocratic authoritarian president we've ever had. And it's so sad because for a stretch there, Americans voted for him four times in a row. So I only say this not to excuse what's going on in Russia, but at some point we have to say, then I've said this before in other sessions, is it in America's national security interest to care about this at all, uh, to care about a fight between uh, Russia and Ukraine? I believe it's largely sparked by the expansion of NATO um, west, uh, eastward toward Russia's border, but that's, for, that's a debate for another time. Um, the Navalny thing, I think, will be interesting from the standpoint of whether it hurts. It'll be interesting to see whether it hurts the vote count that comes out of Russia a month from now or whenever, whenever he runs. But um, no, uh, they're not Stalinists anymore. Thankfully, they're not the USSR anymore. I've been on this theme for a long time. Thankfully, China is not Maoist China anymore. But Unless you have this history, if you just start your history like from 10 years ago, as most conservatives tend to do for some reason, they hate Putin and Russia or the Democrats do as well. Or they hate China. And I don't know. I have a longer term perspective that says things have really improved in both of those countries. Does it does it mean that they're fully embracing capitalism? No. But the difference between Stalinist USSR and Putin's Russia is so different. It's in the right direction. And same thing with China. I would say the same. You can hate Xi if you want. They're kind of nasty, uh, but um, they're not Maoist. They're not collectivist. They're trying to move toward capitalism. I think in both these cases, both these countries. That's going off the rails a little bit because you're asking about Navalny. I, I don't know enough about the case. I have seen the documentary, the, the Netflix documentary on Navalny is fascinating. And I'll, I'll just leave one more thing. It's not true, I found, that Navalny actually had a political following sufficient to have a political party. And my interest in this was to see whether that's true because they wouldn't let him form a party. And my research shows that that's not true, that he is a dissident, that he is a critic of uh, Putin. But there are many people in Russia, including Putin, but also others who say he's just a Nazi. He said that the only thing he's offering is a kind of Russian nationalism that is um, more Nazi-like. And you know that that is an issue that uh, uh, Putin has brought up in Ukraine. He's worried that He's worried that a big part of Ukraine is Nazi. Now, now, I need to back off from this at some point because listen, what listen to what we're talking about: socialists and Nazis fighting each other. What the what the hell? Like, why do we why do we care? I kind of care as a spectator, but I don't want American lives and treasure involved in that. And I have to say, I actually feel the same way about Israel and Palestine. I'm rooting for Israel. I think they're more civilized than the Palestinians, way more civilized than the Palestinians. I think the Palestinians are aggressors. 
But I'm looking at both of these um, as one is a kind of secular socialist versus Nazi war, Russia and Ukraine. And then there's this religious war, Jews versus uh, Islam in the Middle East. And from an objectivist standpoint, a pox on all their houses. I, I don't want any of it. If they would only all embrace reason, egoism, and capitalism, uh, they wouldn't be at each other's throats. So I'm looking at this more from the standpoint of, at least from an objectivist perspective, we can explain what's going on here. I just don't get it when people say, let's stick our nose in it, pick a side, and bleed ourselves to death trying to uh, back a winner. All four of these are losers in the sense of they're not for reason. Um, a Jewish state, an Islamic state, a socialist state, or a Nazi state, these are so far away from objectivism and from capitalism and from Americanism that um, I, I really oppose us being in involved in it. Interested philosophically, politically, yes, but but to sacrifice ourselves, as both the conservatism and Biden regime people want us to do in both affairs is, to me, uh, unconscionable. Great. Well, we'll uh, open it up if anyone uh, wants to respond to that or has another question. Uh, I've got more, but I think Lawrence has another one. Lawrence, go ahead. Yeah, sure. So uh, I ha I was recently listening to a talk here in uh, the in, in Texas, and they were just talking about sort of immigration at the border. And while I'm not really focused on that, it was interesting. The speaker paused before he was giving his case, and he wanted to make it very clear that he was not an anarchist. He wanted to make that very clear. But then he started talking about um, essentially what was sort of abolition of sort of or of like borders free movement and traffic sort of just it, it reminded me a lot of certain arguments i've heard from social circles that sort of see like you're not a citizen of the world you freely travel right. wherever right. you want right and yeah i wanted to ask you about that that's a really good question that's a good question this comes up a lot and there's a lot of confusion associated with this it's interesting to me that um now, just let me just start with this, because it's kind of just interesting. I always want to address a group that interested in Ayn Rand's ideas. In, in the 1920-21 period, and I'll bring this back to Ayn Rand, because it's so interesting what she said about the nature of a state. In 1920 or so, Max Weber, who, fam who was famously, no he was a German a sociologist, uh, very erudite, but he was famous for saying that capitalism was made possible by the Protestant work ethic. And although we're not religious um, and wouldn't attribute the rise of capitalism to religion, but rather to the Enlightenment, it's still interesting because the Protestant work ethic um, is a real thing in the sense of uh, work hard, be frugal, look long range take care of your family, save money. But, but the idea was do it for the greater glory of God. But still, you can see why those virtues are close to our virtues. Okay, but Weber was interesting because he also said um, he was the first one to define what a state was. It's kind of funny that nobody had done that yet. 
but the nation state itself in in uh, the na- I'd say the nation state as a hyphenated in Europe was unique to like to the 1870s. It wasn't it wasn't until like the 1870s that Germany, um, it definitely Italy united in some way. Up to then, they were kind of uh, dispersed and fighting with each other. So imagine like it's similar to the United States becoming united. Um, after breaking from Britain. So this was happening in Europe in the 1870s or so. So in 1921, Weber very famously says, a state is, I'm paraphrasing now, I don't have it in front of me. A state is, has a uh, a monopoly on the use of for a legitimate force in a particular geographic area. It's a little more than that, but and Ayn Rand basically adopted that. I don't think she knew directly that it, that Weber had said that in 1921. But if you know Ayn Rand's definition of the state and her resistance and objection to anarchy, she, like, <laughs> just as she defined capitalism, had to define what a state is. If the state is legitimate, let's hear a definition from Ayn Rand. What is a state? And she ba- basically, maybe indirectly, adopted that Weber definition. Now, the reason I say all that is, if true, then borders matter. Borders really do matter. And and within a country, it's so interesting because fencing and borders within a country signifies something close to the Lockean principle of private property. Not what Hardin called the tragedy of the commons, which is really the tragedy of communism, the tragedy that Unless we own private property, we're going to dissipate public property. I do believe that the argument that the border should be open, anarchical, uh, erased, is totally an anti is 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 an anti-capitalist. You mentioned the citizen of the world type of thing, but there is definitely within socialism and Marxism, not in Nazism, not in fascism. The, or nationalism generally, the idea that there should be no borders. And I think that is exactly what's driving the, foreign, the, the policy down south. Now, you could say um, more cynically, but maybe realistically, that it's also happening in a partisan way because the Democrats think they'll get voters. And so let them all in uh, so they vote for us. Uh, that's probably part of their motivation, but I think a deeper motivation is the idea that America would be self, this is their thing, America would be selfish to put up a fence. America would be selfish to, you know, micromanage the border and have a, what I've advocated, an Ellis Island type model that says, well, we're not going to close the border. We're just going to manage it. We're just going to process people and we'll have certain we'll have certain objective standards like uh, they can't be carrying a communicable disease. If so, we'll send them to the local hospital or give them an objection. They can't be a criminal, or uh, they can't be a terrorist. Th- that's just like basic stuff. But if you say otherwise, yeah, come on in. But we're going to take down your name and send you over to the language office and try to get you assimilated and. <coughs> We don't have any of that now. We have either <clears throat> we have either complete anarchy and open the border, and we have no idea who's coming in, 
That's one side. And the other side, and the other side is close the border. I, I don't want, I don't want to close the border. We might have to escape this place at some point. I don't want to be jumping over barbed wire fences trying to get out like I'm in East Germany. So um, I don't know if that helps, but I, I'm, I'm of the view that borders are an essential feature of a legitimate nation state in modern times. <clears throat> and uh, all the other reasons I named, uh, you see the, this false alternative that's been given. Open borders versus closed borders. I've, I've noticed on the ARI side within objectivism, I won't name names, but they lean in the direction of open borders, don't ask anyone any questions. It's not quite anarchy, but it's closer to anarchy. I'm not. I'm not in that camp. But I really, I, I really don't like uh, walls. I mean, if walls are necessary, to, Ellis Island is a different case because you didn't really need a wall because they had to come over water and a ship and show up at the island. So I don't know. Down in Texas, it's what seven hundred miles long. Maybe, maybe you need a wall, but I think you also need like twenty-five processing stations, too, <laughs> so so they're not swimming over the Rio Grande River that, you know, or crawling through uh, scrub brushes that have processing centers. It's not that difficult. It's not that, it's not that costly. Uh, so thank you. Legal, legal in immigration to the max. I love that. I love that. I love that idea. <laughs> well, we're uh, very pleased to have uh, Atlas Society founder, David Kelly joining us. David, do you have a question for Richard? Uh, not so much a question. Uh, most of the uh, things that Richard's been talking about are kind of, uh, I, 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 I was going to, I think I raised my hand when, I, when he was talking about Russia and Ukraine and uh, Israel and Palestine. You know, I have a different view of foreign policy, uh, and that's a common phenomenon among objectivists that, um, we start from the same premises and draw different conclusions about <laughs> yeah. international yeah. affairs. And, and, you know, Richard, you and I have been around a few rounds on that. So, but I don't want to go there. Um, but it seems to me that, um, you know, I've, I, I've long been in favor of open borders. I've, I've been writing about this, uh, I wrote about it for, for Barron's magazine yep. back in the 80s and uh yeah and i think that i just want to endorse the solution that um uh, or the the approach that richard mentioned you know people the basic principles people come to this country yep. with one mouth and two hands and yep. Yep. to work and feed they don't hurt us they add to you know if they come with talent Great, and many do. But even if they don't, they are at their if they're willing to work and be productive. That's that's great. We just need, but however, we do need to um, have borders. I agree with, totally with that, and manage the borders. But it could be so much better done with yeah. um, better immigration law, um, which apparently is impossible to achieve in our current Congress. But <laughs> Right. I mean, it's it's just yeah. you know it's it wrecked all kinds of things, including you know support from Ukraine. But l right. leave that right. aside. Right. Um, oh, because they're kind of because they're, they're trying to link the two. Yeah, I see what you mean, David. Yeah. Right. That that's the 
you know, yeah. one strategy, it, it, it doesn't seem to be working. But anyway, um, but, here, but here's the thing. Anyone should be welcome to this, to, to enter the country and assume a, uh, uh, a, a place as a citizen eventually uh, over, you know, a period of, you know, time. Um, if they're willing to work and be responsible, obey the law, they don't have communicable diseases and so forth. They're not criminals. Um, so all yeah. the things that you mentioned. Yeah. And, but here's the problem. Um, yeah. We have a vast welfare state, which also draws um, yeah. many, yeah. Uh, some some immigrants anyway. And on top of that, a large number of immigrants in recent years have been fleeing from chaos in Central and South America. They're they're not coming because they, you know, the U.S. is the least bad choice for them. Um, and so I'm I'm wondering if here's the question: Is there anything we could do to um, because we want these people, we want the, you know, the honest, productive at any level of product, uh, productive ability. We want them here, but we can only take so many. I mean, you know, it. There is populations, uh, you know, have a, you know, just like an economy, has, uh, populations have limits and. Um, it it's not, it looks like we are exceeding those limits now so or close to them maybe not that's arguable i don't i'm not an expert but um but in any case do you think there's any any scope for the us government i mean let's suppose it first solved the if the border problem by setting up more uh, ex admission statements um uh, places um, making sure somehow that immigrants um, come, don't cross the Rio Grande um, illegally, yeah, but yeah. but come to the pl right places yeah. and um, yeah. do it honestly. Yeah. Yeah. But on top of that, do you think there's any anything that the U.S. Sh should be doing in our foreign policy regarding um, one of the big incentives, I understand, for people coming here in the first place? Um, the you know the chaos, the utter horror of life in some some of this these countries that are fleeing. Yeah, a couple of things, David. Really good stuff. Wow, I, I should call you offline, and three hours later we'll figure it out. <laughs> um, this, this stuff you raise is exactly this kind of stuff I worry about and think about. And a couple of things. Sometimes um, when you said the thing about why can we not get any kind of bipartisan solution, my, philosophically, I've always thought when you hear the phrase, we need comprehensive immigration reform. I actually think one of the reasons that doesn't happen is no one thinks comprehensively anymore, David. This is great. <laughs> I mean, I mean get the whole the word comprehensive means uh, we have to bring in a broader context and then there's uh, cost benefit. And I think, I don't think it's a dastardly thing. I think they're actually incapable of it. 
I think we're in an epistemological level legislatively where they're like remembering, didn't we do comprehensive immigration reform in 86? And actually they did it in 86. That's where I wrote my article. <laughs> but yeah, I know. But they don't know. It was the Simpson Mazzoli Act or something like that. Right. And they and Ray and Reagan agreed to it and had to do with amnesty and everything. But okay, that's just my first point. That's kind of like a, a epistemological nit that I'm not even sure they're capable anymore of seeing it in this broader context of what you and I are talking about. Namely, well, you don't want to. You don't want this false dichotomy of close the border or completely leave it open to the anarchy and and frankly the inhumanity and carnage that's going on down there, including slavery and, and selling people into pornography. I mean, it's really just awful down there. The fact that any humanitarian would endorse that. Now, your point about the welfare state is very interesting because Milton Friedman said that one time. He said um, in the 70s or so, and it would be a counter to my theme that the Ellis Island model was well, anyone can come to me and say, Richard, the Ellis Island model doesn't apply anymore. Because Ellis Island was 1890, whatever, to 1920, and we were not a full-fledged welfare state then. That's true. That That is actually a good argument. Because if you know, people do know when they come here what the hell they're looking for. They're not dummies. To, to make that kind of trek, whether it's from Europe or whether it's from South America, the, these people are very attuned to what's going on in America, what's allowed or what's disallowed, where can I get the benefits? I mean, some people specializes in, in, in advise, advising them. You know, lawyers are down there and telling them what services they can get. So I do think that's a problem, that now we have a full-fledged welfare state, unlike 1920. And then you have to think, are you coming here because you're a parasite? Or are you coming here to uh, bomb the world, uh, the Freedom Center? Or are you here as most Americans see, many Americans, to do productive things and be liberated and free. And we all want that third category. So I, I do think it makes it difficult because it's diff it's more difficult to see why people are here. But, you know, even when you cross borders and go through the airport, they ask when you're giving the passport, they ask you something very basic. Are you here on business or pleasure? Everyone has experienced that. Yeah. Right. You go through the check. You go through the checkpoints. Why can't we have? And I know, David, you agree with this. Why can't we have checkpoints that are rational, that are clean, that are that we well, apparently we, we spend money on everything but something which is basic to what Weber and Ryan and Ayn Rand said, namely border management. Put more money into it. Have people processing these people. It takes five minutes to inter interview someone. And ask them, why are you here? Who are you and why are you here? And and it doesn't have to be much more than that other than the checks you name, namely, do you have a disease? Are you a terrorist? We have technology now, right? We should be able to check the background of have alliances with Mexico, have alliances with Ecuador, share, our, share your criminal databases with us so we can quickly check whether this person should come in or not. I think all those kind of things could be done. Now, here's... Here's another thing. I'm not actually for this asylum approach that says you can only come in if you're fleeing a regime that's trying to uh, prosecute you as a political prisoner. There's a real weird bias at INS or whatever they call it now, where they won't take you in if you're an economic 
yeah. migrant. Like if you're only coming in because you're poor, because <clears throat> I because I'm starving here and I want to come in, I want to come in and work in San Diego. I I don't think that whole thing that is very weird. All those people should be able to come in. And and you shouldn't have to prove that you're fleeing. I mean, some of them are fleeing a political regime that's oppressive. Here's another. Here's another. This is a very crude one, David. What do you think of this one? I do agree with you that there are these waves that occur, right? Assume we have the processing. I just did a quick calculation. 1% of the American population is 3 million people. I mean, maybe you just have a policy that says, we take in three million people a year. Now, if only one million apply, okay, we're fine. But if four million apply, we're going to have to be more scrupulous about who comes in. But that would be one approach. Now, if you look at the numbers currently, the numbers are like nine million came in in the past year. Wow, that's crazy. That's just it's eight or nine million. And under Trump, in the same three and a half year period. A half a million came in. And even under Obama, Obama deported more people than Trump did. So the change under the change under Biden has been enormous and I think unscrupulous. But I mean, that would be one way of looking at it. it it's interesting if you put like a cap on, but it's not a major cap. I mean, three million a year is a lot, but they would be fully processed. They would be known as a policy all the world around, right? You're not saying, hey, everyone in the world, come in here. <clears throat> but if America announced our policy, it's kind of arbitrary, but our policy is we're going to take in 1% of our population every year. And now people would be competing for, well, I'm from Singapore and I have these talents and I'm from Ecuador and I have these talents. And uh, there would be waves of, you know, if there's just if there's destabilized governments elsewhere. Yeah. Some years, five million people want to come in. Well, we're only taking three other years. Everything's fine. And only one million people want to come in. I, I think that's a understandable, semi arbitrary, but I think reasonable way of looking at it. But you would have to build this infrastructure, which apparently we don't have of processing of processing centers. Yeah, I, I just one. Thank one... you. Um, I uh, I wanted to switch gears a little bit here to politics and just get your thoughts on the um, kind of factionalization within the Republicans. You've got the kind of never Trumper moderates, and you've got the populists and the national conservatives. Now there's a group called the Freedom Conservatives. Yeah, on this one, I'm. Um, what is that telling it is us? A kind of. It's a good question. I I think um, we might call it the balkanization of the conservative movement. I actually think um, at first I thought this is no good, but the more I think about it, the more I read them, the more I think this is a good thing. Um, the the ones I can find are this is the conservative movement we're talking about. So it's either the conservatives or the Republicans, however you want to put it. There's not a complete overlap between the two. I understand that. But there's a group that's like nationalists. Close the borders, uh, tariffs against China, uh, keep out Muslims. Um, American manufacturing is eroding because, you know, jobs are being changed. You do the whole nationalist thing, you understand. But the nationalism on that, on that side includes things like pull out of NATO, 
pull out of the UN, pull out of the TPP. We're not going to get involved in um, international groups. Okay. The other one is populist. The populist idea is, which I think is very understandable, but kind of sad. The elites suck. The swamp is ruining us. Harvard and the poison ivy, I'm using their language, not not mine, are are leading us down the, the path of ruin, or maybe the road to serfdom. And the people uh, should govern. And outsiders and neophytes and those with no resume like Trump, no political resume, I mean, a totally accomplished man, but someone who goes to Washington with like no helpers, no helpers, no think tanks that are going to help him, the the quote-unquote establishment. And then lastly, the freedom, what they call the freedom conservatives, who I most like. There is a freedom caucus in Congress, by the way. The freedom conservatives are saying, you know what? We haven't, <laughs> we haven't over the last 20 years emphasized freedom and liberty enough. Duh. The fusionism. The fusionist idea and conservatism under Reagan and pre-Reagan was bring the conservatives together with the libertarians. The conservative religionists didn't trust the libertarians. They thought the libertarians were just hedonists who just wanted like licentious drugs, sex drugs and rock and roll. And then the, the libertarians would look at the conservatives and say, you guys are so religious. You're so strict. You're so uh, puritanical. And yet Reagan uh, fused them. It was called fusionism. The reason I think it, the reason I think this is good is I think the conservative movement really needs to revive itself, interrogate itself, question itself, debate within. I love the debate they're going through because they're trying to figure out what their values are. Now, here's what's weird. I often say to students when I teach the difference between conservatism, libertarianism, and objectivism, I say to the students, you know, libertarianism, for all its weaknesses, has the word in it, they prize liberty. And objectivism has the word in it, they prize objectivity, as well as liberty, but they think liberty liberty should be based on objectivity. I said, the problem with conservatives is there's no principle there. What are they actually conserving? And the students can't answer it. And I'm not sure most conservatives can answer it. Because I put it this way. If, if you're just trying to conserve or preserve something, you realize that everything's changing all the time. So when I think of a conservative, say, in 1900, and someone says to him, how about a central bank, uh, an income tax, and trust busting? The conservative would say, uh, no. And, and why? Because uh, we haven't had that before. We need to stick with what we got, status quo. But if you fast forward to the New Deal, all those things are in place. And now if you ask a conservative, you know, like a Taft or whatever, he'd say, well, the central bank's okay with me and the income tax is okay with me, but don't, but don't put in Social Security and the regulatory state and SEC. See so you know what I'm saying? They're a moving target. You fast forward to 1965 and a conservative would say, I'm okay with everything that's been instituted up to now, but no Medicare, no Medicaid. Well, if you ask a conservative today to repeal Medicare and Medicaid, he'd say, no way. They're endorsing Obamacare. 
I, I hope you see what I'm saying here. I'm saying something which is very weird because conservatives are often thought of as rock-ribbed, stick-in-the-mud, principled, unmoving, reactionary people. And, and I think the problem actually is they're promiscuous. They'll put up with anything. They're, they'll conserve. They're not in the driver's seat. The, the foes of conservatism, whatever you want to call them, I hate to call them liberals and conservatives because they're illiberal and they're backward looking, but it's like the conservatives are only conserving whatever their foes did for the last 20 years. That's a losing proposition. They're, they're, uh, Hayek said we're on a road to serfdom. I think he wrote that in 1944, David, right, right? And my thinking is the conservative position is put in some speed bumps. We're going down the road to serfdom. We don't really have an off-ramp to offer you. We don't have a capitalist freeway to go to. So the conservative mission will be slow down the race to statism. That's terrible. I think that's one of the reasons they're losing. I, I, I count them as friends in the sense of I, really, I, think, I think you know you love America. You love the Constitution. You think conservatism means those things. But if they mean those things, then they mean those things, not conserving the advance of statism that you're seeing before you. By the way, last week I heard Tucker, <laughs> Tucker Carlson was being interviewed by Glenn Beck. Do you have two conservatives? And Tucker said something like, I, <laughs> he said, I don't think I'm that radical, Glenn. I'm just, I'm just looking for a return to 1993. And I remember, I remember thinking to myself, first of all, I don't know the importance of 1993. Why, why 1993? But that's what he said. And I thought to myself, that is a conservative. Uh, so I, if, I said, if I had Tucker, I sit, sit Tucker down, I'd like, well, the good thing about 1993 is the Cold War is over. But we still have uh, paper money and we still have the welfare state. <laughs> and, we still, and we still have Social Security. Are you endorsing all those things? He would say yes. And I would say, what are you talking about? So the only thing you're against is what? Obamacare, a couple of bad wars, <laughs> the Patriot Act. You see what I mean? The conservatives have this reputation of being principled. And they'll stand up against a, a thwart history, as Buckley said. That's what I'm worried about. Objectivism can teach them so much that you can be principled. And you can be pro cap, but you but you're not going to survive by just being anti-communist, or anti-liberal, or anti-trans, or I mean, all those things are okay, but they only go so far because you're in a defensive, truly reactionary. I mean, they're dismissed as reactionaries, right? What are you a reactionary? What are you against progress? What are you against the move of history? And they do, they do seem that way, don't you think, David? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the conservatives, the the motto, you know, from their uh, opponents used to be, you know, they believe in me too. And I would just add, um, you know, me too, but not quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, don't go. Yeah, don't go so fast. That's great. Yeah. So, so um, anyway, uh, it's not to dismiss. I wouldn't go so far as to dismiss them as. Um, what's my phrase, Scott? I've used this phrase before. They're convertibles. 
liber- that certain libertarians and certain conservatives are convertibles, not in the in the automobile sense, but they're reachable. They're they could be convinced of some of the stuff we're talking about. They here's the here's the big thing. They know they're losing. If you go to someone and they're losing a fist fight, or you go to a football team and they only field a defense and they don't haven't fielded an offense yet, you go to them and say, "You're losing. You know that you know you're losing. I have a di- I have a different game plan for you. Are you willing to listen?" And the other thing I've noticed among conservatives and libertarians, and the and the analogy to football would be something like the coach gets up after the game. And the co- and they have these press conferences, right? And the football coach says, "Well, we lost again." And let me tell you all the ways that the other side uh, beat the hell out of us. They had a better run game. <laughs> they they had a better pass game. And the reporters are listening to this, and they might be fans of the team, and they're thinking, "Okay, you're just describing." how bad things are and how you've totally missed the boat and you're losing. There's a lot of conservative commentary that's like that. There's a lot of libertarian commentary. that's like, In the next week, listen closely to both conservative and libertarian commentary and how much of it is them just describing how much they lost. And no one would put up with a coach who's like, why are you still the coach? You're losing every game. Where is your offense? Why are you only fielding a defensive team? You need an offensive team. You need a, you know. This you know is such I think a that's rich objective, topic. It, it should be its own show, honestly. That's that's what objectivism can provide. It's like going to teams that keep losing and saying, I'm, let me tell you why you're losing. It, it's incomprehensible. That when I say this to conservatives and libertarians, you know what they'll say? They'll say, Richard, I know your views and your views are so extreme they won't win. They'll they'll say something like, since we're kind of diluting the message to make it win, I can't if we're not winning with a diluted message, we can't imagine that you would win with this purest, you know, absolutist message. So you're right, Scott, this could be a whole nother conversation. But you see why they put they would push back with the idea of you're, you don't have a better plan, Salzman, because you're an extremist. Well, I think Malay helped uh, challenge that notion, at least to some extent. Uh, but uh, this yeah. has been a fascinating uh, topic, Rom. I'm sorry we ran out of time, but uh, Richard is going to be back on uh, Tuesday of next week on Morals and Markets, talking about capitalism for and against. Uh, you can register for that on atlassociety.org. And uh, also um, on Wednesday, you'll be back with Stephen Hicks. Is the naturalistic right. fallacy a fallacy? The case of economics. So uh, that sounds fascinating. I look forward to the two of you talking about that. I uh, want to thank uh, everyone who uh, joined us and listened or participated. Uh, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing you at the next one.